Welcome to the Rotman Podcast. This is the third episode of our new series where we catch up with Rotman professors examining the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on their respective industries. So this is going to be a fun one. I'm, I'm excited to talk to Professor Fisher. We both had a class with him that we enjoyed tremendously that I think we talked about in the last podcast. How are you feeling about it? I'm really excited. This was a great one. Professor Fisher is one of my absolute favorite professors that we've had to date at Rotman. And in our first go at electives in January, we, uh, we struck gold, if we both agree, on, on the organizational design elective. It was really interesting, learned a ton. And then almost every class, we had a speaker come in that Professor Fisher knew directly either from teaching them at Rotman or from his decades of experience in the industry. So that was really cool. And I think he brings a little bit of that to this conversation and in the fun informative way he approaches everything what did you think yeah i honestly loved the class i think the most interesting part for me was seeing how many of those original foundational principles are being applied to these new sort of working styles that are coming up nowadays right you can talk about water flow you can talk about agile teal organizations there's so many different sort of terminologies coming out but those four principles are present across all of them. So that was really fun for me because I, I honestly get really sort of frustrated every time I come across a new company and they're leveraging a totally new leadership system. And I'm like, I have to learn this now. So um, that was great to see that, you know, those sort of principles can be applied across the board. But I think that's enough about us. Without further ado, let's jump into our conversation with Professor Jim Fisher. We are incredibly excited today to welcome Professor Jim Fisher to the Rotman Podcast. Professor Fisher is a professor emeritus of the University of Toronto and teaches leadership, strategy, and organization design in the MBA, EMBA, and executive development programs at the Rotman School. He is the former Vice Dean and Marcel Desotel Chair in Entrepreneurship of the Rotman School of Management and author of The Thoughtful Leader, A Model of Integrative Leadership. Professor, thanks for being on the Rotman Podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Both Vaishnavi and I tremendously enjoyed organization design during the intensive week. And we talked about this, unfortunately, well, it was, you know, virtual, but we mentioned we might have to jump in and, and sneak into a class if we can next uh, next term, just to get that experience sure. with you as well. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Great to be here. Awesome. So you came to Rotman in 1998 and were instrumental yes. in developing the school's first course on leadership. Can you tell us a little yep. bit about that process and starting a new academic focus at the school? Yeah, it's well, I would say like most things in my life, I fell into it rather than planned it. So I was in the midst of I had I had a business I was running and I had sold it. And we had done all the negotiations, the legals, et cetera. And then if you've ever been through this, there's a process of due diligence and approvals and all that. When basically the other guys run your own your business, but you don't. So you have nothing to do, but you can't do something else. So it was just that is that weird little interval. And just out of the blue, somebody phoned me and said, I heard you might be interested in teaching a course. So we have this course called Human Resource Management. And would you like to teach it? Well, I had nothing else to do. So I said, yes, uh, well, let, let me come and talk to you. So the essence of it was, this was an executive MBA program. It was a course on the HR function. And in the executive MBA, they try and give people the full breadth of things. So as an executive, you should know about the HR function. Therefore, here's a course on the HR function, except the class hated it. 
they hated the course. They hated the material. It was all kind of administrative stuff. Nobody wanted to teach it. And so they were stuck. And they so they phoned me. I mean, I was the last ditch because this was in the summer and they had to, it was on in September. They had to have some poor, poor fool standing up in front teaching this course that nobody wanted to take. So they had this idea, which was a valid idea, which was that everyone, anyone who runs a business knows how important human resources are. And that if you say we had somebody who could teach the course from the perspective of someone who's run a business, then it would be better. So I came in and I looked at the course and they gave me the whole material, all the stuff, all the files, et cetera, et cetera. And I took it away from the weekend and I came back on Monday to meet with them. And I said, you know, that's a pretty interesting course, but I can't teach it and I wouldn't want to take it. But what I can do is this. So I'd been running businesses, various sizes. I think the largest I ran was about eight or 10,000 people uh, all over North America. And what I, my feeling had always been that we managed people as a cost and an, a liability. We did not manage people as humans as a resource. And I hated it. I just hated it. I, I hated it. And there you are, like you're the president. All right, why don't you change it? Well, no, I couldn't. I could do it in little ways. You know, we could change some things about how we did things to treat people differently, to recognize people's value, to give them a chance to be involved. But in the end, this was a labor, you know, unionized labor force. So it was us versus them. And I just hated it. I just hated, hated, hated the way we treated people in organizations. So I said, I can't teach the HR function, but I will do is develop and teach a course on how do you manage humans so that they become a resource. So that's what I did. I did not have the temerity to call it a leadership course because there wasn't one. And I could not come into the Rotman School as some business guy without a PhD and all the trappings and say, um, we're going to have a course you've never had before and you have to recognize it and I'm going to teach it. The fact is, I would say because of the desperate situation and they didn't have a second choice, I was given the opportunity to do it. Now, there's still an academic oversight. So I had to create it. I had to create the whole course outline. I had to have readings. I had to have theory. I had to have assignments. I had to do all those kinds of things. And that all went into the organization behavior people who looked at it and agreed it was acceptable. But the course remained human resource management. I didn't really know I was teaching a course on leadership. But as I went in and started reading, started looking at the things that I thought was what everybody should know, like John Cotter, what do leaders really do? There was a book that I had kind of uh, had been sort of a Bible for me called Leadership and the Quest for Integrity by two guys called Badaracco and Ellsworth. It, I kind of fell into this idea that in managing humans to make them into a resource in an organization, what I was really talking about was leadership. So it evolved. It evolved into leadership. At the time, there weren't courses on leadership. And I can tell you the reason I really know that, like without having done extensive research, is I did do a whole session on leadership for one of the major banks. So I did 500 of them in groups of probably 40 or so. So quite a few sessions, quite a few sessions over a long period of time. And for every one of them, I would say, okay, how many of you have an MBA? And almost everybody puts their hand up. 
And then I say, okay, how many of you took a course on leadership? Nobody, like nobody who had uh, those senior people in a bank, they had all sort of thought it was mentioned in an OB course at some time, maybe a class, but no one had taken a course. So that, I think that's where we were. And I think it's useful to recognize like that's 2000, you know, the year 2000 plus, we were just actually coming to believe that uh, leadership could be teachable. So, so the, the point of it was people did not teach leadership because they thought it was trivial or unimportant. They all knew it was important. You know, Harvard always says we develop leaders, et cetera, et cetera. All kinds of business schools have leader in their vision statement, but no one thought it was teachable. You either had it or you didn't. And if you had it, you were a leader. And if you didn't, you worked. So that was really where the, where the whole thing started. That's amazing. And I think, you know, everything you've done, your experiences and your sort of thinking around leadership, it was really evident in the course we took, you know, I don't think there was ever a point where I looked at the material and I was like, okay, I just don't have the skills to be a leader. So I need to find something yep. else to do. It was always yes. very, you know, equipping me to be a leader. So, so I did appreciate that. So you released a new book in line with the whole leadership concept that we're talking about. You released a new book this year called The Thoughtful Leader. Tell us how you came to the process of writing this book and, and why you chose to focus on this topic even further. Okay. So actually, the book came out in 2016. So it's old. It's old. Oh, we got our it's facts still. wrong, Phil. You got, yeah. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. But it's been around for a while. So how did the book emerge? So the book emerged out of the kind of a framework. So the way I do think about teaching is what I want everybody to leave my classes with a framework that they can carry with them forever to make sense of the world. So when you took organization design, you got the congruence framework. And I hope we did that enough that you will never, ever, ever see anything organized and not see the congruence framework at work, because I think that's what you need is, is you need those frameworks. You need five forces if you want to understand an industry. You just it just has to be there right in the front of your head. So I was trying to get a framework. That's what I kept working at. As as it turns out that they asked me to teach the course again and then teach it again and teach it again and teach it again. I gradually worked my way to a framework. And Vaishnavi, what, what, what it was directed at was something you said, the way you described how I kind of relate to this is I can recall as clearly as if I was there, I was talking about different parts of leadership one day, and there was somebody sitting in the front row, a terrific guy, I even don't remember his name, and I can see him. And he said, oh, I guess that means I can never be a leader. That's what he had taken from what I said, which meant that somehow he had, and he was a fabulous guy. And in fact, he was one of those guys who in his study group, everybody in his study group ended up on the Dean's list. And they all said, who taught us our MBA? And it was that guy. That guy led his group. He was fabulous, fabulous guy. And somehow he had taken something from what I said to say he could not be a leader. And that just made me really then say, come on now, I have to develop a framework that's not going to be easy because leadership is hard, but anybody who actually wants to work at it can can be an effective leader if they have an, a, a useful way, a way to um, organize their thoughts and their actions in a useful way. So that led me to saying, I need a framework. 
So I developed the framework. I would say I had the framework by, let's say, 2008. I had the framework. And I gradually came to understand it more as the more you teach. I mean, it's a wonderful way to learn is to teach because people ask you questions that you hadn't thought about before. And then you have to reconstruct them. It's, just, it's a fabulous way to learn, actually. So the framework emerged. And then I probably, if I hadn't written the book, I would have kept evolving it because I think, you know, your thinking keeps evolving. But at some point, you got to say, no, this is the framework. There's five forces, not 11. You know, you got to at some point say, that's it. Okay, make it all work. So I sort of gradually came to that. And I would say the next critical moment was after the school had actually recognized that leadership is a topic and it was a course and people could learn it and people could teach it. We recruited this wonderful uh, person called Tiziana Cascaro from Harvard, and she had been teaching a leadership course there. At the time, we had four sections and her deal for coming to Rotman was that she would only have to teach two because she had research she had to finish. So that was her deal was she teaches two sections and she does her research. So they needed someone to do the other two sections. So Tiziana and I sat down to say, okay, we've got to teach this course together. I had my strong views of how to do it. She came from Harvard. She had her strong views of how to do it. So I remember we had lunch and we sat down and I showed her my framework and she showed her yours. It's kind of one of those <laughs> you can think about is it. kind of, it was an interesting thing. She's such a wonderful person anyway. And to my surprise, she said, hey, that's really good, but we can't teach it unless you write it up. There has to be something. There has to be a reading. You can't just wing it you're into your framework. So she was the first one who actually forced me to write a sizable something on the framework. And then out of that, people kept asking me, why don't you write the book? So I wrote the book. I would say it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. In fact, anyone wants to write a book, I said, phone me up and I'll talk you out of it because <laughs> it's, it's really, really hard. I said, I thought it would be simple to write the book because the ideas were so clear in my mind and I had taught them now so many times to so many different audiences that I could do it. And I had, I know I was talking to people from Harvard Business School Publishing who were interested in the book. And I said, you know, I can do the book and it's not going to be that hard because, and I told them those things. And the guy just shook his head and said, oh, my goodness, you have so much to learn. Uh, <laughs> teaching it and writing it are two different things. When you teach it, you can get a reaction from the class. And if it's not clear, you can go back and explain it. When you write a book, it's one time through. Your eyes go down the page once and then they go to the next and they go to the next. If you haven't got it clear every step of the way, you've lost. So it was hard. It was very, very, very hard. But anyway, eventually did it, uh, eventually came out. It was an interesting process. And the reason that I wanted and I liked the book was in many ways so that when I do a class, as I'm going to do in leadership, I don't have to repeat myself all the time. It's all in the book. And what we could do, which I really like to do in classes anyway, is discussion, application. How does the theory work? Where does it fall down? Is it useful here? Is it useful there? And see it and just look at it from all kinds of dimensions. So, so the book has been very, very useful for, uh, for that kind of thing. 
That's really interesting. Thanks, Professor. And I think Vaishnavi and I were speaking leading into this. One of the things that we enjoyed most about the class was that practical, the explanations, but also the people that were attending the class and giving us presentations and talking about their background and, and their pathways. So that was really interesting to see. Specific on, you mentioned the coherence framework, a really clear way, I, I thought, as we went through to, to understand um, and frame the, the material that we we're talking about. One of the terms that you used in class was that of uh, the world being uh, VUCA, and you called it volatile, right. uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, and how over time these things have changed. And, and in your book, you talk about how um, you know we've progressed from managing, directing, to engaging, and you can't really do those in silos, and it all has to be coherently integrated. How have you, right. so obviously the framework is in place and you mentioned that it's important to have one that you're riding with uh, over course of time, but as the world has changed, as you know, leaders and their responsibilities have evolved, how have you sort of tweaked the application of that through your framework? I think the way it has tweaked over time is I think everybody now recognizes how important the engagement column is. There was a time when people said, okay, I can understand all that, but where I work, I don't have to engage. Like all I have to do is boss people and they do as they're told. And that's good enough. And it would be nice if they had a sense of purpose. Maybe that'll make them work better, but don't give me this engaging business because that is just not what I am. That's not what I'm going to do. I believe that's, I know just from teaching it to various people over time, that is now no longer the case. I no longer have to justify the engaging side of the box. In fact, in many ways, what you have to justify is the managing side of the box. You know, because everything is so uncertain and complex, surely we don't, you don't do annual plans with month, monthly budgets and, and keep people you know, measured on all those things and keep track of all that stuff in, in such a short, in that way. But in fact, you do. You still actually have have to manage. The work has to be done. You have to have clarity about what the work is that you're trying to do. So I think that's what really has changed is the acceptance of the importance of engagement, that the fact that you probably can't succeed in, in, in almost anything today if you don't have an engaged workforce alone. I'm just going to pause that. I'm being possibly too positive. If you look at one of the things that I always look at every year is uh, the Gallup organization does a survey of the American workforce and they do it of other workforces as well. And there are flaws in their survey, but the great thing about the survey is the same thing they've done and they've done it for decades. So you can look over time. There's still a huge portion of the American workforce that is not engaged, but the number, the percent that's engaged Gone, has gone from when I first started looking at it was like 20%. It kind of gets up around 40 now, which is a big change of the number of people who actually feel engaged in their work. The number of people who are uh, resolutely unengaged to the point where they would deliberately undermine their employer has gone down. That number used to be quite a bit higher, it used to be like 20, 25% of people go to work every day trying to undermine their employer. 
And I know I worked in factories. I know exactly. I mean, I worked personally when going through college. I worked. I was in the Brotherhood of Electrical Workers uh, and worked in factories. And I could see all the ways that the guys undermined it. I ran all these bread factories and delivery routes and everything. I knew every day there was a whole bunch of guys out there who were undermining the company. They hated the company. They hated their work. They hated their boss. They did the minimum necessary to keep it and let the union protect them or their seniority. But they assured hell weren't doing anything so i understand that whole side of it so i would say i i was probably too positive about what portion of employers leaders people who have responsibility recognize the need for engage but i sort of the way i sort of think about it is people i mean which is just the way i've seen people evolve over time people would have gone from saying to hell with it it's not my job to engage you uh, my job is to tell you what your job is and pay you and if you get your paycheck you're motivated there's a number of people who i used to hear that from nobody says that anymore so i think people now are giving more at least more lip service or acceptance of the need to engage even if they don't actively practice the things that are doing so i you know i think people move over time and and i i just don't expect everyone to go from being i'm the boss and you can do as you're told to all of a sudden turn around and being i'm all here you know what are your ideas tell me you know yada yeah, yeah. it just that that doesn't happen in a human yeah and i think to add on to that i'm sure the pandemic and the whole work from home situation has had a big impact on how people are responding to to work and leadership i think you had yes. randy from Verox. Yeah. yeah when yeah. he went to our course and during the intensive week he mentioned some unique ways how he was making work through the pandemic better for his employees. Yeah. I remember one of the stories he he talked about was how the toilets were breaking down because nobody yes. had used them so much. That was completely <laughs> yes. shocking. Um, yeah. yeah, that was wild. But in your opinion, what do you think organizations have done well so far to remain adaptable? And how should they continue changing what they're doing in response to the pandemic? Right. Well, I mean, the pandemic has been huge. It has put stresses and strains on organizations like nobody could have imagined. I mean, at the first, at the one end, of course, it disrupted their whole, their supply chain. And, and, you know, we are supply chain, supply chain, but it, it was, I, I think supply chain, not on, on just in terms of physical goods that came into their place, but on who their customers were and what their customers wanted and what their customers needed and what their customers, how, how their customers were prepared to do anything, as well as all their suppliers and their bankers and their everything, like everything, everything got disrupted. And then we got into this thing where they have to, you have to change everything that they were, all their expectations of what you can should be done. And of course, I'm positive as well as some negative. I remember, you know, you, you may remember Mark from YouTube, and he said one of the things the pandemic did was it moved up Google's expectations of how we use the internet. They were predicting we would get to a certain stage in 2026 and we got to it in 2021. It just, boom, people gone on and adapted and did things. So everything changed and you had to be able to, to, to pivot. And for a lot of people, you had to do it from home and you had to do it over all of this technology. It's just a thing to think about is what if we didn't have this technology? What if you couldn't gather 
without passing this disease around. How on earth would we have done anything? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how we've done. I would suppose people would probably have had to come to work and, you know, the transmission would have been much higher and more of us would have been sick and so on. But, you know, it's sort of a miracle that this pandemic happened at a time when Zoom and Microsoft Teams and a whole bunch of other technologies made it possible for a large percentage of the workforce to do what they had to do from home. Although we also have to now remember, which I think is really, I think is helpful on the engaging front, we also came to recognize how important all those people who couldn't work from home are, all those people who we took for granted, all those people who are showing up at grocery stores at three o'clock in the morning with the products that are going to go on the shelf. So when you come in the next, when you go shopping, you know, the toilet paper amp, uh, aisle isn't empty. Um, so I think we've come to maybe have um, a greater respect for all of those people. I think organizations like Randy, where he always had respect for every single person in his organization, he did this just naturally, were able to function, uh, function really, really, really effectively uh, to the point they came in so often that they were breaking the toilets. I mean, it was a great, I had never, I've never heard of that one before. So what we did find out was how engaged your workforce was, how, how engaged were they did they care? Did they take advantage of the situation to do less, not more? I think you you got a pretty good reading on those things. The other thing I think that has happened over time is organizations that, in fact, did pivot very quickly to work from home, Zoom. A lot of people ended up booking their day from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. with Zoom calls. Never stopped. One after another, after another, after another, after another, after another. And I know many people who, after six months, just quit, just outright quit. Or if they were working for a good employer, they were able to say, I need a break and just were able to just walk away from it because it was too much. What it demonstrated was all of that was unnecessary. I mean, that was a really a great demonstration of poor organization design. It was jobs and work was was organized in a way that made you think you had to do these meetings every single hour because everybody had to be informed about everything and everybody had to sign off on and agree to and you know you had to make and I mean all these people who were I must, I must say who were into this burnout thing what they were doing in a lot of these meetings was they were building massive slide decks because bosses still, everything had to come up through them and all had to be approved and you had to go all up through the chain or every step in the chain, you needed another slide deck. And bosses felt that if they didn't get a good slide check and make at least 12 uh, changes to it, they hadn't done their job. I think what we discovered was basically how badly designed a lot of organizations were, that they didn't really know how to let people do their work and trust them that they would do their work well and would ask for input when they needed and wouldn't blow the company up without asking. So I think a lot of those, I, I think a lot of those things changed. I think we also discovered how important human connections are. And uh, I think we discovered that 
organizations that had a great um, human connection, a sharing connection, uh, a sense of treating people as 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 people, um, not as 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 just little squares in a, in, in a machine, were able to to do that. There was a social cohesion that could develop. Even though it had to be done over over uh, over the electronics and not in person, so which was all if you if you can if you guys are, are running through your organization design class, you've had a strategy change which led to a redefinition of the work to be done, and then what it did was said how what kind of people do we need and what kind of culture do we need and we had to get all of those things in line and all of that stuff was put through um, was really put through the burner to see how, see how well companies could adapt. Absolutely. And to tag just on that a little bit further in terms of the, the leaders themselves that are onboarding um, employees and, and bringing people into the organization, I know even in our cohort and many friends that have started jobs during COVID yep. and have never met their <laughs> colleagues or bosses or anybody in person and just been operating yep. remotely for months. Obviously, you know, the challenges of that from the employee side are, are clear. We talked about it a little bit. Any thoughts, you know, whether it's strategies or some experiences that you've seen for leaders that have had to onboard these employees in a virtual time and engage them as, as much as they can and, uh, and really sort of make that culture transition and everything a little bit smoother, perhaps? Yeah, no, there are there are a bunch of things that I see have happened. And, you know, a lot of this, you know, kind of comes back. You asked me about VUCA and how do I stay on top? And I can say the short answer is you can't stay on top, but you want to stay as observant as possible and as curious as possible. Well, I think one of the, I think for me, one of the great things about me is at this point in my life, I am teaching and I'm interacting with people like you all the time, which gives me a whole lens on what's going on in the workforce. So I would say from all kinds of people like the students who are there talking about their experiences, what it, what you found is that leaders who do recognize that they need to know their people as, as, as human beings have been better at it. They could just do little things that would show that they care, that they would make sure that they knew that somebody was having a difficulty or their parents were having a difficulty or their kids were having a difficulty or their kids were succeeding or somebody was happening. What this has all done is, is made it really important for us to deal with humans as humans and make sure that people feel that they are being recognized as, as, as more than just the work that they do. And, because, and what it does, I mean, what it does, which is really important, is when people feel that they are being recognized as a human, they don't have to put on a show. They don't have to pretend that everything is well when it's not. There is nothing more stressful than having to pretend uh, that you are who you are not. It's really, that's, that's a difficult thing to do day in and day out. You know, we all know we have to do it. There are times when we have to we have to act in a way which is not really how we're feeling. So we all know we have to do it. It's damn stressful. And what you don't want to do to people is make them have to do it over and over and over again. Every Zoom call from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. You can't do it. So I think a lot of the things that people, that, that leaders who have been able to keep their organizations functioning have recognized the signs of stress, have recognized uh, and applauded the contributions that people are making, 
and have found ways to alleviate some of those things. Like, you know, lots of places like uh, I think it's probably now normal in banks. No Zoom calls after what some date on time and like three o'clock on Friday afternoon or maybe even noon on Friday afternoon. No Zoom calls on the weekend. No working on the weekend. No emails on the weekend. A lot of those kinds of things that are people are doing. And it's you you can kind of respect how how difficult it is to balance that with the fact that the business itself is now demanding so much of people. So you can have in some kind of places, you know, let's let's take Randy at Virox. He was going 724. That's what he was doing. We have to do the 724, but he was offered, he was able to provide the human supports that make that possible. If you're one of 80 6,000 people at the Royal Bank. Dave McKay can't do that for you. He, he can't offer that kind of, of, uh, of a feeling of human warmth around you that makes you feel like you can do that and not burn out. So I think, I, I think what I've observed is that the large organizations have had to go to more structural ways of getting at the same thing, of recognizing the human need and ensuring that 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 they take steps to do it when they can't know every single human being personally and have a personal connection to them, you know, the way Randy could do at at, at Virox. So I think that's where we are. We're in this mix of doing a lot of mechanical stuff to recognize it and then the other side. The other thing, though, that's going on, which is interesting. So I have Actually, you you met her. You met Amy, who's at RBC, and and she's in that stage where her week is filled with presentations to the people at the top of the bank, and uh, so she's not at the top of the bank, but she's in the stage where all her work is. She has to ultimately interact with them, and I do remember after one of her meetings or calls anyway they were all having a kind of a post-mortem thing and they were they were just yakking about life and zoom and this and what's it going to be like after and amy said have you noticed where all those guys are on friday when you're on the zoom call do you think when the pandemic is over they're going to be back in the office on friday when they could be at their cottage no chance so i think one of the things that's going to happen is People have realized that for lots of people, this working from home thing has been fantastic. It's been amazing. It's enabled them to be around their family. It's been able to at a place where a nice place to be. And one of the things that's going to be difficult is getting people back, is getting people to go back. And if I come to where, where you were, which is how what happens when you join the company and your boss never gets to know you? How do you get developed? And I think that's what's going to happen is organizations are going to say, hey, bosses, you think you call the shots and you really like being at home and at the cottage and wherever and doing all that stuff from away. You know, you are the ones who won't be able to do it. Not that you, no, not them. No, not the new people in the middle. They'll be able to keep doing it. You are the one that's going to have to keep coming to the office. Because you have to do the mentoring, the development, assessing people, doing all those things that you need to do in person. And so I think there's going to be kind of a very interesting flip on who gets the freedom and who is going to be the one that gets uh, it gets tied. Yeah, 
I know Phil and I have experienced some very similar things. I don't know if you remember my paper comparing the two different companies I've, I've worked at. I started a new job at the pandemic and that yes. organization has done a wonderful job of, of onboarding. I am extremely close with coworkers and, and have a good understanding of the product. Um, yep. And I think we're seeing this across the board. I'd love your point about this having a negative impact on the managers rather than the employees. Yeah. We think about companies like Shopify, for example, they're selling off all of their offices and, and buying massive, you know, cottages for offsites, right? So um, yes. I think we're going to see a big boom in these sort of startups that are helping employees onboard and helping employees train and learn from managers online. So I'm, I'm definitely excited to see that sort of new vertical that's going to come out in the, in the near future. And I think everything you just said is really representative of that as well. Okay, but here, Vaishnavi, here's an interesting thing. Think about this. Google has just announced the biggest real estate deal in New City history. They paid billion dollars for a physical place. And Google is saying physical matters. So physical matters, and they are really determined to get people back into the physical surroundings, even though, as we know, is what Mark said, they quite naturally work remotely. Like, as he said, you never know who's part of your team, you know, what, what, A, what level they are, where they're sitting, are they in an airplane, are they in an airport, are they at their office, are they, so a lot of their stuff they do, but nevertheless, Google wants people to come back and experience the Google thing, while Shopify is going the other way. And yeah. that's going to be really interesting. That's going to be interesting. I, I'm, I, I have loved Shopify, but I'm, I'm, I, the stock is kind of half of what it was a little while ago. I kind of think I'm not sure they're right. I'm not sure they're right. They might be, but, but I'm not sure. It's going to be interesting. I think it's going to make for some wonderful case studies the next time you're presenting organization design as a course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I get, I get another one. Yeah, I'll just tell you another one. A personal one is my son, who's in New York, and he well, he was an investment banker, and then he's kind of a financial guy, has done like all these deal stuff and everything. And just, I think, during the pandemic, he changed jobs, and he's in New York. His new job is, um, well, I'll tell you, because he always wants to advertise, is Turo, which is a company which is trying to do for car rentals what Airbnb did for people using their houses or Uber did for, for taxi services. So Turo is one of those. They're all over the world. They, they haven't yet uh, done their IPO, and he's joined them to do that. And their headquarters is San Francisco, and he's in New York. So this is a big deal. And his wife has a great job in New York and his daughter is very happy in her school in New York. So what do you do? So he did the job because he really wanted to do it. He's prepared to fly and et cetera, et cetera. But then the pand pandemic came along. So for his first year, it was entirely remote. It was just 100% remote. And they were good at that and they were happy with it and it all worked very well. And I think after about a year, he actually went to San Francisco and went to the office. They were starting to get come together. And he was surprised at how comfortable it was to have gone from being totally remote, not knowing anybody. He felt like he knew them is I, I think what, what he would say. He felt like he felt like he knew them and he knew who they were. And but I do I just don't know. And he doesn't know what's he going to do going forward because I think he's he's still in this kind of perfect land where he can 
just continued to do a lot of stuff, work online, and he visits the offices around the world online, and that's still acceptable. I just don't know, and he doesn't know how long they'll be able to keep doing that. When will they say, no, we all have to get together, you know, do whatever it is we do to connect. I don't know. I just don't, you know something, I just don't know how the world is going to evolve. But if I go back to my old leadership framework, if you keep saying to yourself, engage, 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 engaged, I can do all kinds of online Zoom calls to do my planning stuff. I can keep talking about our vision and purpose and try and do that. But how am I going to have an engaged workforce that's able to deal with the challenges unknown, unexpected opportunities uh, if I don't have them engaged? And how am I going to do that? And that's what I think. I think everyone has got to be, everyone who wants to be successful is going to have to have that top of mind. How do I engage? Are they engaged? How do I measure engagement? How do I assess it uh, when I can't see them? Yeah, all of those things are going to be really important. Absolutely. And I, well, it appears the Turo case study has been successful in some ways in, in the engagement piece and in making your son comfortable. And it appears that this is about that time as we slowly start opening and people are probably facing that similar decision. So it'll be certainly interesting yeah. to see uh, to see where it goes. Professor, I, I mean, I think we could keep going for for hours on these on these conversations. But we <laughs> want to be mindful right, of your right, time, right, we could. mindful of your time, and just appreciative uh, that that you're here with us this evening. We have one last segment that we would love to do with you. Um, it's it's called yep. the quick fire round on uh, on the Ramen podcast yes. here, and it's essentially just get to know our guests on a, on a little bit more personal level and uh, an opportunity for sure. students and prospective students and alumni to engage a little bit. So um, we'll have a set of questions that Vaishnavi will uh, will ask you here. Um, in a second sure. and it's it's whatever first pops into your head we usually put a fictional 30 seconds on the clock but feel free to take whatever you like so Vaishnavi uh, are you ready to to start it off yes and I just want to preface my questions by saying we will judge you for your answers so <laughs> just, there are only right answers yeah yeah there's only right answers okay <laughs> great Okay, I did get the wordle today in case that's one of your questions. Oh, I haven't gotten it yet. <laughs> I haven't gotten it yet. Okay. Okay, we'll 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 start. Phil, you wanna count me down? Absolutely. Three, two, one, go. Very important. How do you take your morning coffee? Oh, uh, I love a latte with uh sugar-free vanilla extra hot. Oh, right answer. Um, we saw you take, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this during our organizational design class, but what is your favorite wine? Actually, you know, my favorite wine right now is a Chablis, a Col Chablis. That's on the white side. And I'm going to give you a Montrachet on the, on the red side. We would get along great in person. Just want to. Okay, good. Um, do you keep up with any newsletters, blogs, or papers on the daily? Well, on, on the daily, like I do the daily, uh, the New York Times daily, and I do the New York Times all the time. What else do I do? I don't know. I don't do. I'm not. I'm not as good about that. I'm terrible on trying to find places in social media that will keep me current on everything. Um, I count on other people to do that and send me the ones that matter. That's. I think that's kind of that's where I am. Good way to do it. Um, what is your favorite place to think, work, or take a break on the U of T campus? 
Oh my gosh. Okay. So I grew up on the U of T campus because I went to UTS, which is at the corner of Blue and Spadina. And then I went to U of T and I was at Trinity College right there and played football in the stadium that was right there. So I grew up on the U of T campus. I love the U of T campus. I love philosophers walk down between the museum and, the, and by the music school and the law school and all that kind of stuff. I just, I think I love the U of T campus. I grew up on the back campus, which is now the carpet that used to be grass. That's where all my practices were. That's where I worked out all summer, all the time. I love it. I love the front campus. You know, the only trouble with, with the campus now is when I walk through it and people are kicking a ball or they're starting to throw a ball, nobody asks me if I want to play. <laughs> and, I just, and sometimes I stand there and watch the game and somebody says, we need another uh, zip. We can fix that, Professor. Yes. No problem at all. See you on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was just going to say, we take a walk down the philosopher's walk all the time. So we'll have to coordinate and, and run into each other. Okay. Uh, what would you say is the best book you've ever read? Yeah, the book that I kind of go back to over and over and over again is, is Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. That's really was, that really rocked me. And I now, I now see that so many times and I'm so aware of flaws in my thinking and, and I try and catch myself. But I think that is an absolutely a fabulous book. I, I'll give you another one nobody's ever heard of, but I read a book many years ago by a guy called Studs Terkel, T-E-R-K-E-L. And I'm not going to recommend everyone go out and do it. It was called Working. And what he would do, he went around with a tape recorder in those days, and he would ask people about their jobs. A paragraph, a page, two pages, no more. And oh my God, it just opened your eyes to what's going on inside the heads of people who you take for granted. I, I'll never forget a guy who was a parking lot attendant, the pride he took at doing what he did. Another person who had become a union organizer after she her opinions were dismissed by her employer, who thought because she had that job, she therefore must be stupid. And that the union was the only place that recognized that she, she had a brain and was smart. It really changed everything I did because I ended up running factories and, and running these huge blue collar workforces. And I guess it, it takes me back to where I was. How do I treat these humans as resources? Because they are. It was a really, 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 really insightful uh, book that said, you really don't take anybody for granted. Don't think you know. There's a lot more than you're not, that you're not seeing. We'll definitely have to check that one out. The last one on my list, what is the okay. best piece of advice you have ever received? Oh, here's one. <laughs> this was from the person who is now my wife. Marry me or I'm going to Europe. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> I'll have to use that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I would advise you to marry me or I'm going to Europe and I don't know if I'll come back. There we go. 
That's fantastic, Professor. Thank you for sharing. I think on that note, a uh, perfect place to uh, take a pause on this chapter. And, and we just wanted to thank you so much for your time. And it was great seeing you again. And hopefully when we'll all be back on campus in a couple of weeks, we can stop by your office and just pop in and say thank you and, and hello in person. Yeah. But thank you so much. This is fantastic. Right. Hope to see you all in the halls. Yeah, I'll be looking for you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Okay. Yeah. Okay, bye-bye. And that's it for the episode. Thank you for listening to the Rotman Podcast. Be sure to follow us at the Rotman Podcast on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on the latest in the club and all upcoming podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on all major streaming platforms to listen to our episodes. Have a great week, everyone.